Welcome to the Filmlings Podcast. A mixed-rendered podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 132, Lord and Miller's Laughs and Mischiefs. That's right. Today, Jonathan, we're going to be talking about a pair of directors, um, producers, writers, uh, all-around collaborators. It almost doesn't feel right to call them just directors, although they do do that. Um, They also uh, are primarily animators. They have a dip into the live-action world, but animators might be the most accurate title. But regardless, we are speaking of one Phil Lord and one Christopher Miller, both born in 1975. Uh, Lord is from Miami, Florida. Miller is from Seattle, Washington. Literally, like two of the farthest <laughs> points on the continent in the continental U.S. Um, and they they met in college at Dartmouth College, where they went, uh, where both made short films and ran columns in the student newspaper. Um, and eventually, a paper uh, that same paper that they worked at actually ran a column on Miller. Uh, which was so like congratulatory and celebratory and promising that it written caught the attention. Miller. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know who the article was written by. I didn't look that up, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say it wasn't Miller. Um, but this was caught that this did catch the attention of one Bill Eisner, uh, who at the time was the head of Disney. Uh, you've almost certainly heard his name before. If you move in film circles, uh, Anyway, he really, really liked the article and thought Miller was super promising and wanted to see if they could uh, set up an interview with him, probably hire him, you know, snipe some fresh animation talent coming out of college. Um, And Miller said he would only do it if he could bring Lord. And it was a done deal. The two moved to L.A. where their show Clone High. Are you saying that Lord is the Owen Wilson to Wes Anderson? Uh, Kind of, in a way, yeah. (laughs) Uh, except they, those, except they, those school friendships are always fun to see how they evolve. Yeah, um, and the two, the two moved to L.A., uh, where their show Clone High was produced by Fox, um, and then dropped by Fox, which is a very Fox thing to do, by the way, to constantly cancel stuff that no one wants canceled. Um, then produced uh, for a full season by MTV, where I met with acclaim. They continued to work on a series of other sitcoms and shows. Uh, and eventually they were attacked to write cloudy with a chance of meatballs and then they were fired and then their replacements were fired and then they were hired again. And this is just kind of how Hollywood is. Uh, it's, it's always been a little bit that way, but it's been especially that way, uh, for the past, uh, few decades. Also uh, not really the only time that's happened to them. And we'll get into all that. <laughs> no, later on in this, this show. is, this is incredibly common. Um, Especially, it, it, it's kind of been, it's not that it didn't happen in the studio system or that I'm going to go into a tirade singing the praises of the studio system as the studio system had a lot of problems of its own. Uh, but it, per, the lack of centralized production and uh, direction at the studio level after the fall of the studio system definitely shows, especially when you get into uh, development hell stories like this where people are hired and then fired and then fired and then hired and how development hell has just become or feels like it has become much more common in the past few decades. Uh, and they're definitely susceptible to that. I believe it happened to them on star Wars as well. Yeah, um, so the, the Han Solo thing. Uh, but regardless, we will be talking about a few of their movies today. The first of which 
Um, actually, I think we're talking about four. Their their four features. I don't think they've done any other features yet. Um, yeah, but they do uh, have some of the works. Except for sequels, we're we're not covering sequels, but we're just going to roll them into the yeah, discussion. I don't think of we're talking about Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs two or Twenty Two Jump Street or the Lego Movie two. They, there is a Lego movie too, isn't it? Yep. And I don't know how, uh, off the cuff, I don't know how involved with it they are. I'm sure they have producer credits. I don't know if they directed any of it. Or they directed, uh, I actually have this pulled up right here. Um, they directed 22 Jump Street, but, and wrote the Lego movie too, and kind of have a story credit for Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs too. So varying levels of involvement. Gotcha, and gotcha. we'll see that with Spider-Man, too, because they yeah. Phil Lord wrote was co-wrote Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, and they're both writing the sequel. So it's like they're so all over the place with their films and if they're directing or writing or producing and just kind of like jumping in and out. But needless to say, they have they are having a big impact on the way that animation is happening right now. So that's that's really what we're getting into. Yeah. And the uh, the films we're talking about today are Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs from 2009, uh, which is directed and written by both Lord and Miller, and it was their first feature project. Uh, 21 Jump Street from 2012, which is directed by both as well. Um, not written by them, though. And then this was their first uh, foray into live action. Uh, then the Lego Movie from 2014, which was, again, directed and written by the both of them. And finally, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse from 2018, which is the epitome of a collaboration project, which is something that both Lord and Miller are self-professed very into. They really like high collaborative projects um, where there isn't like a super clear uh, head person, director, super in charge of everything. Uh, I mean, they are a collaborative team themselves, right? But Spider-Man was directed by three people. Uh, Bob Persichetti, uh, Peter Ramsey, and Rodney Rothman. Uh, and it was written in part by Phil Lord. He has a story credit on it. And then Lord and Miller were both part of the horde of producers, along with Avi Arad, Amy Pascal, and Christina Steinberg. Um, so that movie had a lot of creative talent at the top uh, who were very much in a collaborative uh, kind of work structure, and that seemed to work very well for that movie. Uh, but without further ado, let's hop into the individual breakdown, starting with Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs from 2009. Jason, take it away. Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs from 2009. Flint Lockwood is a failed inventor. It's not that he hasn't invented anything, just that his experiments never go quite right. His pet monkey, Steve, and emotionally uncommunicative father don't really provide the support he needs either. But everything changes when he invents a machine that can turn water into food and then promptly causes an accident that launches the machine into the sky. At first, everything is great. Flint is a star overnight, and meteorologist Sam Sparks finds her career rising as ever-increasingly strange food-based weather patterns form over Flint's hometown. But the food that falls from the sky becomes increasingly larger in a state that no one could rightfully call under control. Now it's up to Flint to own up to his shortcomings and stop his machine before it crushes his own town into dust. All right, Jonathan, have you ever read the original Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs? I have not, uh, but I'm very curious to know how any book could have inspired the ridiculousness that is this movie. 
It's it's very loosely inspired. I don't think I've uh it feels like that. Yeah. I've read Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. I have absolutely no memory of it other than the cover <laughs> because I read it when I was a very small child. But uh, it is definitely loosely inspired by that. Uh, but it is very much a uh, a big movie, a fun movie, a colorful movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it feels, especially when we look at some of their other work, it very much feels like this is... Uh, like it, especially in retrospect, it feels like a training ground for both Lord and Miller. Like you see, yeah. uh, the the parts of their style that will become bigger in their later three films, and that I can almost guarantee, I'm willing to bet you'll see in Spider Man Two and their other upcoming works. Uh, bright colors and characters, uh, zany situations, rapid firing visuals. Uh, also rapid firing uh rapid firing story beats and character development and jokes mm-hmm. and then concepts that uh where the comedy derives from them being blown up to just huge proportions um so something that could be kind of funny out on paper and then what if you took it to the nth degree and that's what makes it funny and in this one it literally becomes that through just food becoming ginormous uh yeah but there's always a parallel in that concept becoming big and becoming funny by being big, but also that concept becoming dangerous in a way that ratchets up the drama and the character development as well. Yeah. And honestly, that that uh, kind of speed of the comedy that you're talking about um, almost makes me think of uh, which which I hadn't really thought about it in these terms, but it's basically screwball like the the speed of those old school um, type of comedies really transfers well into all the work of uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller, where it's just kind of joke after joke that makes it uh, rewatchable, which is great, especially for a children's film. But also there's so much like nuance to some of the stuff that's just happening so quickly that um, you ca- you almost have to watch it multiple times and you get the the smaller layers um, like the the one child who just yells, I love strawberry and is the only one on the strawberry side of the Neapolitan ice cream. Um, but there's there's also like a range of stuff. So there's oh my gosh, rewatching this movie, which I've seen several times. But there are some things I that I was just one like of your favorites. Oh, it's it's almost like an instant classic. Like it's so quotable and just ridiculous, but just like wholesomely fun at the same time. And yet rewatching it, I was thinking there are so many things in here that I'm kind of shocked that they got away with. Like in that, in the, the ice cream scene, um, when he goes on like literally like a neighborhood shooting rampage, but with ice cream snowballs. So it's fun, but it's literally like, like a shooter in the way that it's framed and stuff like that. You're like, did they really pull that off? Um, but another thing that this movie I think shows off that's going to come up in all of their films and kind of the, the running theme that I was sort of noticing throughout their, their career is that they have such a good grasp on story structure and also tropes and they use them in both a very self-aware way and also in a very kind of 
manipulative way in kind of like a Hitchcockian manip- manipulative way where if they can lead you down a path that feels very familiar, so we kind of know where we're going, then they have all the reins to just turn it in a different direction and kind of subvert your expectations. So they do that a lot by using um, references to uh, film genre, references to specific films. There's a lot of specific film references towards the end of the film um, and um, character tropes and stuff like that. And this shows up in all four of these movies that we're going to be talking about today. The Lego movie is probably the most obvious, um, but it's it's kind of like woven into the fabric of everything that they do. You can tell that that they love film and they really understand how it works and why other people like different types of movies. Yes, they're definitely uh, very well experienced, both in like they've done their homework, you know, they've, they've seen a lot of the classics and absorb it and incorporate into mm-hmm. that, into their work and their working structure as well is really, really, really good. And this is common in all, all forms of uh, movie making, but it's very common in animation to have a very heavily iterated style. Um, and especially in animation where basically you make an animatic of the whole movie, uh, which if you're unfamiliar with that term, an animatic is almost like a, pumped up storyboard of a sort yeah. that's put in order to kind of like move as if it was a shot by shot make of the movie. It's uh, like turning you, a storyboard into a PowerPoint almost. Yeah. Yeah. And you basically, you make a full one of those before you make the movie before you spend the money on animating it. Right. So I think they, they said uh, that they went through, they made this movie like four or five times. Uh, yeah. in, in the anima- animatic stage. And there were a lot of changes in that process. And that iteration kind of helps develop the uh, the story to be better and more, especially when you're working with such a loose concept. It can be hard to find uh, a root in something, something to ground the characters, something to make it feel real. Um, the, I think the story that sticks out most from the iteration process for me is uh, the uh, Flint's father, was originally just like he he just worked at the tackle store and was Flint's like boss, basically, who yeah. worked there along with him. And he wasn't supposed to have any kind of deep thing. But, you know, the fact that that's his father and that he can't uh, he's not good at communicating emotionally kind of becomes like a big part as to why we care about Steve as or sorry, not Steve. Steve's the monkey. Uh, why we care about <laughs> we Flint. We do care about Steve. We do care about Steve. Uh, his translator plays a big part in it um, as to why. Uh, we care so much about Flint as a character because of his family connections. Or, I mean, honestly, let's talk about Steve because that's a that's a good point that comes into iteration. Um, and I've heard it said before that, a, I think from Neil Gaiman, that uh, the process of making a second draft is the process of making it look like you knew what you were doing the entire time. <laughs> um, and something like the fact that uh, Flint's father is finally able to express his feelings by through Steve's monkey translator is exactly the kind of thing that you would have come up through iterations and second drafts. That's not that that's a really good idea, but it's not the kind of good idea that just pops up on its own. So, uh, I mean, these are guys who definitely know their, their film history and, uh, have watched all of the best stuff out there and have absorbed what's good about it and know the process really well and work through that process to make their thing over and over until it's good and worth making. Yeah. 
Um, and I think it's important to talk through, uh, like, the variety of characters and also the level of depth that is put into all the characters. Like you're saying, like, the father was really developed into a character, but that kind of bleeds into a lot of the other characterization throughout the film. So you have Mr. T's character, um, who is the relief for Flint and his father, who are estranged, and then Mr. T is almost like too affectionate towards his son to the point where he makes it, you know, snow ice cream oh, and then everyone gets foil. sick and um and but he has like this guilt trip angle and and all this stuff because he's showing like how father and son should be uh interacting and that kind of thing. But even you know, there's so many characters that just have like so many uh levels to them like even baby brent who becomes like this ridiculous sort of like superhero towards the end um yeah, after being the most brent. annoying character in the world yeah uh, and the mayor who is not really redeemed but he he seems like you know he's just going to well no pun intended for his whole character arc but he seems like he's going to be a small part at the beginning and then just like grows until he overtakes the whole film towards the end um and stuff like that and then even manny who just like shows up at the end and can do everything um which is which is ex manny yeah (laughs) exactly um so yeah there's there's like just a lot of detail put into a lot of these uh into these characters and the way that they that they interact and stuff like that um which it's so easy for children's films to not do that, that I think even when it's kind of done at a very basic level, it's easy to take for granted because um, like the sidekicks in children's films are often just like dumb and that's their entire like point. Um, And Steve is kind of that, but like you're saying, even just the element of having his, his thought translator, which becomes part of the way that, Flint connects with his dad, like elevates it out of that level to some extent. Disney is really bad about making just dumb side characters. So one of the things I've noticed, and I'm going to try to avoid going on a tirade here, uh, as I've done more work um, (laughs) on TV shows, is that the thing that often makes a TV show good or bad isn't um, necessarily the just the people working on it. And part of that is just because there's so many talented people out there making, trying to make the best stuff they can. The thing that can make it really good is time and being able to go through that process. Like Lord and Miller are just hardcore advocates of doing. And And even how Pixar has their brain trust that we talked about way back in the Toy Story episode. Pixar works on movies for years before they start making them years just longer than any other studio would kind of even half think about giving a production cycle for so oftentimes when you see a crappy kids animated movie that's kind of been pooped out by a studio um it's not because the people working on it are incompetent um in fact i'm willing to bet a lot of the people working on it are incredibly talented uh it's normally because they have x number of people and x amount of time to make it and it's a miracle that the thing got made um, and rendered properly in the first place. So it's kind of nice to come back and watch this movie because it's so clear that the people who made it put the time into it. 
And I do feel like when this movie got released, it almost immediately got written off as just another one of those kids movies. But it's way smarter than a lot of the other kids movies that came out that year. Yeah. Um, Of course, we're also still in the peak era of Pixar dominance. So you you either have to be a Pixar lookalike or a in that same kind of round 3D animation, Mm -hmm. uh, which while this doesn't look exactly like a Pixar movie, I would put that in that I would put it in that category just for terms of style style and how it would appeal to the general populace of movie consumers Um, or your indie uh, your counter Pixar. You're like a a studio canal type uh, setup where you're totally different and totally your own. But then you come across to the general audience as um, indie and artsy and too inaccessible almost immediately. Not to everyone, obviously, and not to a lot of the people who watch this podcast, but from a marketing standpoint, uh, which almost always determines what gets made, it's kind of hard to make good movies like Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. And the fact that Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs is good is kind of a miracle and a real testament to the people who made it and put the time and effort into making it. Yeah. Um, So I do kind of want to touch on the sequel a little bit. Did you ever watch the sequel? No, I don't think I've ever watched the sequel. I watched it one time, so I'm I'm not going to be able to speak to it too specifically. But my main takeaway from the sequel was that they kind of replaced all. So I think the premise of it was they have to they like left something on the island and now it's been taken over by the food and it's like its own little Jurassic Park. Um, And so they have to go back there and fight all the like grown up like food ecosystem or whatever. Um, but my main takeaway was that the whole second movie was was written to be an extended like hour and a half long pun because it was all just food puns one after the other, which Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs has. But I feel like it's not driven by let's make a bunch of silly it's food more, puns. It's it's very character driven. As, yeah, the humor is almost all character driven. Mm-hmm. And which even stuff that is the. Uh, the kind of humor that sticks with you from a comedy film. Yeah. Yeah. And even stuff that's just kind of goofy, like one of the most still every time I watch it, the most like unexpected parts is at the beginning when he's uh, under the pier moping and then Sam comes and she's moping too. And she sits down on the pier and her heels go straight into his eyeballs, um, which is like the most ridiculous meat cute in the world, but it works because they're they're both brought together by them being very sad uh, and and all this kind of stuff. And it's not and just eyeball kicking. <laughs> and eyeball kicking is just the icing on the cake of that one. Always um, very important. Also, I was thinking about it, and I don't. I'm I'm trying to think of another film where the MacGuffin turns into the villain. Because that's totally what happens here with the Flimstifer. Oh, the Flimstifer? Yeah, it starts out as the MacGuffin at the beginning. That is why he's doing everything and why everyone is chasing him and why all the food is coming down. And then it turns into a sentient howl-like being that is trying to uh, stop them from preventing it making any more food. I mean, I guess it's the villain. It doesn't it doesn't really have a lot of sentience or agency, though. It feels like a natural disaster, even though it's man-made. Um, 
if you if you if you know what if you're picking up what I'm putting down, right? Like it's it's the danger, it's the doomsday. Mm-hmm. But you know, I don't know. Do you call the would you call the Sharknado in Sharknado the antagonist? <laughs> well, I guess in that sense, if we're going back to basics, that would be uh, I guess in Sharknado, it would be man versus nature, but here I, it's more like man versus technology. Was, uh, that, a thing? was that one of the categories? This is, I would call this one man versus self. Because he, it's his own invention got out of hand? Yeah, it's himself. Flimstifer is Flint. Okay. So what are the rap birds? Those are his imaginary children that gave him anxiety, or his imaginary <laughs> friends from his childhood that gave him anxiety. Yeah, because uh, he didn't have enough friends giving him anxiety as a as a child. Um, no, the point is that he didn't have any friends. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, oh gosh, yeah, I guess the uh, uh, the, the the I think the idea and the, the character arc is a little difficult to unpack in this one. It hits, but it's not as easily digestible. I think as like a Pixar. Uh, mm-hmm. One, because it, it kind of boils down to something along the lines of you can't rely on external ac- ac- accomplishments to get people to like you. Um, yeah. Because that's kind of what he's trying to compensate for. He's like, oh, everyone will like me finally if I if I do this. Uh, but that doesn't entirely hit. Um, if Although you, if it you, does, if you put it that way, it does um, make sense with uh, Sam's arc, which is kind of similar, except she had tried to do the same thing of getting everyone to like her by suppressing if everything I that she myself to be someone liked. else. Everyone will like me and I'll get what I want, except that's yeah. not how that works. Whereas Flynn was, if I can make everyone like the stuff that I like, then everyone will like me. And baby Brent was just like, well, everyone liked me at some point, so they must still like me, right? Baby Brent was doing the <laughs> oven. That man is not fully cooked. As, and that's just like, is his character... <laughs> Like, do you know, I mean, have you ever met someone like that where you're like, you need to go back in childhood and spend a few more years there before you come back out and be an adult for a bit? Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think, I think the, I think my one nitpick with Flint's arc would be exactly what we were talking about just now, where it feels like at the beginning, what it, it feels like he just wants to make, he has a very strong want and that is to make a successful invention. But mm-hmm. it is not super duper clear why he wants to do that. Does that make sense? I I think it's like it's the, more the that he reason, is an like inventor. He has ideas, and mm-hmm. he wants to be a famous inventor or make something that will actually help people. Um, but there's always like one kink in whatever it is that he's invented yeah. that makes it not totally useful. Yeah, I think I think my thing is we never see him really want to be a famous inventor. Like he does become one, right? But he doesn't, and he, mm-hmm. he embraces it and he takes requests and stuff, right? But he doesn't like in, even try to enjoy that fame and find out that it's not what he wants or like seem to, like he doesn't change when he becomes super famous, if that makes sense. Like he's still like a bumbling dude. He was a bumbling yeah, dude, he, and now he's he a bumbling dude with does. a big button. He, it, it's actually very brief, but I think it's in there in the moment when the mayor convinces him to do the huge order right before the ribbon cutting, and then at the ribbon cutting, he says something to Sam when she comes up to him, and it's like, hey, we've got a big, like, 
food storm coming and he's like get out of my way like this is my moment to shine and yeah, then like i think yeah that's that's it that's it but it's I think, like two seconds i think what hurts it actually is when like other people come along and convince him like if it had started off that way but like the final the final thing of him doing it shouldn't have been like him needing to be convinced it should have been like he's gonna do it because it's gonna make him the biggest name in the world or something like that yeah you know what i'm saying like it would made yeah. it, I think it would have made it a little bit stronger and hit a little better, but I don't think it takes away from anything else we've talked about with the movie. Yeah, no, I totally get that. And speaking of worldwide, um, can we just point out that <laughs> when they're showing the the natural disasters on the TV across the world and all of her reports are being translated into other languages and then they literally translate it into English again for Britain just with an accent and with oh yeah that's says, a really good joke because because yeah. the way she says it is like this is a town that's that's a la mode and then when it goes to britain it's like a town that is truly topped with ice cream like totally unnecessary translation but hilarious it's a good joke it's clever humor all right we've been on uh, cloudy for a while do we do we want to move to 21 jump street yeah let's move off of clever humor for a few minutes oh sorry was that a little bit ahead of time? Nah, it's this is, 21 Jump Street is a brand and it's just it's not quite Lord and Miller's brand, but that's OK. We'll talk about that in a sec. Uh, Jason, take it away. 21 Jump Street from 2012. Morton is a nerd and Jenko is a jock and high school is high school. The two aren't exactly what you'd call friends, but years after graduation, the pair meet at the police training academy and find that what one lacks, the other has, and become best friends and bicycle cop partners. After screwing up a big arrest, they find themselves assigned to a promotion-slash-punishment job in the 21 Jump Street Division, an undercover unit of cops that pose as high school students to root out high school crimes. Suddenly, Morton and Jenko are back in high school, but the roles are reversed after a switch-up, and their friendship and skills as policemen are put to the test. How familiar are you with the original 21 Jump Street, Alex? Because I am not at all. Oh, I haven't seen any of it. I I actually watched the title sequence um, after watching the film, and it's got to be the most 80s police-like titles I've ever seen. Or sure. early 90s, and, I'm not exactly sure. What, I'm 100% sure that this movie got made because Jonah Hill grew up like watching this and reruns of this. <laughs> uh, that would make sense. Because really, I mean, Lord and Miller directed it, right? But really, this is a Jonah Hill movie. And this is coming off of the, um, I'm sure he did other stuff in between because late 20, I mean, he still is, but late 2010s or, or late 20 knots, early 2010s, he was very he, he was very very busy making a lot of stuff mm-hmm. um but this is very much like super bad all over again in a lot of ways i don't know if you've ever seen super bad um i yeah, thought it was kind really of... <laughs> it's definitely well, not your humor like i i could tell you i if anyone at, walked into a room uh, and was like life on the line make a bet will johnson like super bad i'd be like no not a not a chance. Not a yeah, chance. So that's that's kind of uh, one of the things that I have to put out there at the beginning of Twenty One Jump Street is that this type of movie, like super bad, the I'm I'm gonna say that like Step Brothers falls in this category, like all that kind of stuff are movies that I actively try to avoid. 
And 21 Jump Street kind of confirmed that for me. So that's what I'm going to put out at the beginning. I, I know a lot of people like really love that style of humor. Not for me. So it's kind of yeah, just it's literally, the it's, veneer it, that I'm watching it through. <laughs> it's a brand. It's very much this, this uh, it, I mean, I can't think of, it, it's just teenager humor, right? Like it's kind of got like this immature angle to it. It's It's a lot of like toilet humor mixed with like kind of like this faux aggressiveness. That's and actually like kind of, oh gosh, I want like to get really kind technical. of being mean for humor, uh, for I, humor's sake. And I'm not saying it can't be funny, but I am saying that it is definitely like a style, right? And mm-hmm. some people are going to be into it and some people won't be into it. Yeah. And I, I want to get really technical on like why it doesn't make sense, but it doesn't matter. Like if you like that type of humor, you're, yeah, I mean, it, hits, it doesn't it matter, hits, you know, like, um, but I will say, like, like the 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 thing that is difficult to like just on a logical level when you're watching it is that they are not very good at being cops and they're not very good at being high schoolers. So it, oh, the, I, the freaking, it doesn't make any sense why they're in any any of these situations, like either because well, they, they, they act like high schoolers when they should be cops, but they have like no professionalism it I just, think that's supposed to be part of the humor. Yeah, it's not really like yeah, like if you're coming to Twenty One Jump Street or Super Bad for like logic, like it's not going <laughs> to hit. Um, yeah, some of the some we'll get into that the, with the relationships so, too. So for for the really like good parts of it, it's or Super Bad and this. I don't know how this became a Super Bad episode, but it did, and that's because <laughs> Twenty One Jump Street was written by Jonah Hill and like Jonah Hill's friend. So this movie is very much a Jonah Hill joint. It, you know, it there. I think there's like this deep emotional level to it that makes sense in that way that like teenage emotions don't make any sense. Um, and the in the way that Superbad was about that confusion of growing up and starting to leave high school, I think mm-hmm. uh, this movie is more about like what it's like to be out uh, just out of high school in some ways. And it doesn't spend a lot of time on that. I'm just saying that those notes are there and that yeah. that's kind of what it is. Um, this, th- and that's just, that is the style of humor on here. Like there's, there's a lot of very inappropriate things that happen and are, some of them are, are hit and were very funny the second time around. Cause I've seen this movie before, like years ago when it came out and I watched it again recently for this episode. And when I watched it again recently, I did not like it. <laughs> um, but uh, and, and there are a lot of parts of it that just did not age well either. Like there are mm-hmm. some like not okay parts of this movie anymore. Like how Jonah Hill's character is an adult in his mid twenties. And now he's like falling in love with and hitting on a high schooler. Like that's a no, no. Um, or like the humor where Channing Tatum's teacher, uh, who I didn't realize that the first time I watched it, cause the show wasn't out yet but is the, the same actress who does Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Um, oh, yeah, she's in The Office, too. Yeah, she's also in The Office. Uh, is uh, is a teacher who hits on Channing Tatum, which is actually okay because they're both in their 20s, but like she doesn't know it at the time, so it makes it also weird on on screen. And there's, there's a lot of other weird humor like that where you're like, that's not okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's weird. Um, but that was also, I guess, just part of the humor of that time period. Um, or people were still trying to wake up to that. I don't know. But uh, but yeah, it doesn't doesn't age super well. 
also, if you're old now like me, you're probably not going to find it as funny as when you were 16, 17, 18. Yeah, it's it's for a certain age group as well. Ideally, now, there definitely there definitely are a lot of notes of Lord and Miller in here in terms mm-hmm. of stuff like the pacing, uh, in terms Picking of picking up on of tropes and character and that kind the, of thing. Yeah, repetition, iteration of jokes, callbacks, uh, the visual style. uh, And in this one, they start playing with something that they play with a lot in Lego Movie. And you see the whole team work on in Spider-Man with the intermittent slow-mo. In here, it's played up a lot for kind of like over-the-top laughs where the slow-mo lasts for like a weirdly long time. Um, But it definitely becomes like a part of their action style that you see in Lego Movie. Uh, yeah and some other work from them that's that's really cool um the bright colors the zany over the top characters uh that all feel almost like cartoons at times more than uh 3d animated people well yeah Uh, and it's also that the the there's there's actually a like a huge portion of the story is built around um this idea of when like going back to high school at a different time and now all the the stereotypes of high school are different and they tried to do do like a the the self-aware woke thing but i feel like the self-aware woke thing never really comes off right it never comes off as either woke enough or like critical enough and it it just doesn't make any sense it just kind of like you're like i don't know what i'm supposed to think about what you think about anything (laughs) yeah yeah exactly it's um it i mean like it's a teen comedy movie right like and it 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 definitely feels like that and it is that um so if that's what you're coming to to the movie for that's what you're going to get but i don't i don't know if there's a lot of notes in this movie that really yeah oh speaking of the the self-aware comedy though like Lord and Miller is always very self-aware and they're always playing on tropes and stuff. But this one out of the ones that we're talking about is like probably the most blunt about it. Like when Ice-T comes up and says, uh, oh, I get it. I'm the stereotypical angry black sergeant. Well, guess what? I'm a sergeant. I worked really hard to get here and I'm black and I get angry. And they just but sometimes they like spell it out too much and to where it's like, okay, we get that you know what you're doing, but you're still doing the trope. Like, uh, like the I think, and I think that kind of we're hopefully getting away from the self-aware thing because I think people realize that acknowledging that you know you're doing a trope doesn't actually get you out of still doing the trope. <laughs> that shows up in a lot of films. Um, yeah, I'm also not actually sure if I've ever seen a angry black sergeant trope I think there was an angry angry black sergeant in the original 21 Jump Street. So that's probably where that came from. Oh, is that where that's coming from? Okay, I gotcha. So here's another, um, this is a real question, um, but kind of technical again on a story level. The emotional core of the movie, because as silly as the movie is, it still has to have this core, which is the relationship between Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum. And the, the point is that Channing Tatum feels 
betrayed by Jonah Hill because Jonah Hill is now popular and haha it's funny because the nerd kids are now the popular kids and vice versa and and Channing Tatum is hanging out with all the geeks um but the element that I felt was completely missing was that Channing Tatum never has a self-realization moment where he's like oh I was Jonah Hill I was Jonah Hill to him when we were in high school he never has the self-reflective moment of He's he's just mad at Jonah Hill for being so mean to him and never realizing that, oh, wait, I was like that. I should apologize to him, too. Yeah, I feel like that was kind of an easy element that was never brought up. Does that not happen? I don't think it did. I was waiting for it. I sort of felt like that happened. Maybe I just inserted it in my head. Yeah. And and maybe it was kind of in there, but I, I definitely thought that it would be a stronger portion of Channing Tatum's character, but he was just very sad that Jonah Hill was being so mean to him. Um, yeah. So, I mean, so uh, I'm curious about this, Jonathan. So I have one particular kind of humor that I really can't stand. And it's not the immature humor. I mean, sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it's not funny for me. You know, it kind of depends on like how well they do it. Some of it's mm-hmm. actually genuinely funny, but if it's just immature to be immature, I don't find that funny. It's not like, oh, he said poop. That's funny. Um, like, I don't actually think that's funny uh, just because you, you you said a naughty word. Um, they say a lot of bad words just for comedic one, one, Yeah, so there's one kind of there's one kind of humor where you just have to watch someone be really awkward for like an extended yeah. period of time. And that's kind of like what they do in this. That's kind of like, like Adam Sandler humor. I feel like, yeah, I, I really, I really hate it. I really hate it. I hate it so much. And, and the, the, the reason I hate it is because I don't, it's the kind of humor that makes you want to look away from what's happening when someone fails that bad. Uh, you don't, you don't want to see that. Right. Mm hmm. So why would I watch that scene? Like, if that's my reaction in real life, like, I don't enjoy watching someone fail. <laughs> like, I really, yeah. like, like that is unless, fun. Unless you can add an element of schadenfreude to it, there's... And yeah, unless you're enjoying watching someone fail, or, like, someone's really hyper-confident. Like a but sympathy you, cringe? Yeah. That's harder like if to, you, to pull off. Yeah, if you see someone, like, who knows that they're about to do bad... And gets up there and doesn't want to do bad, and you don't want them to do bad. And specifically, I'm thinking about this poor uh, Jonah Hill in like the first like theater scene. Oh, Oof. with the freaking Peter Pan thing. Oh man, the first like theater monologue. Oh boy, that is rough. I don't oh, want to watch God. that. <laughs> I love how the theater monologue is the is the part of this movie that she couldn't stand. Oh, That's I mean, hilarious. there's lots of movies, uh, lots of parts where I'm like, "That's inappropriate." That's inappropriate. Not yeah. just like in like, "Oh, ha, ha, that's inappropriate humor." I'm like, "That person should not be flirting with that person. That yeah, is yeah, not yeah. okay." Um, yeah, no, I mean it. It was a, a weird moment, and then the other thing. Oh gosh, I can't get logical because he he's tripping on the drugs and then he does the monologue because he's got his boosted confidence in phase three or whatever the heck. Um, and then he goes all the way through to the end of the show after he's not super confident in himself anymore. 
I mean, progressively, he kind of gets that way through the film. But like, how did he get through rehearsals? Rehearsals don't exist. Also, oh, gosh, this kind of movie just like does not understand how high school actually works uh, because people don't have this much time to do crap between classes. Or maybe I just I wasn't in that crowd. I don't know. I guess they were skipping class or something. Who knows? Who knows? It's made up. It's made up. It's definitely made up Hollywood high school, which we know is a thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Next up is the Lego movie from 2014. Jason, take it away. The Lego movie from 2014. The creative and different sections of the Lego world are threatened by Lord Business, who seeks to make all things conform to his instructions, even if it means freezing the world with the power of the all-powerful Kragle. Master builders across the lands have gone into hiding to continue the fight and find the piece of resistance which can stop the Kragle and save the world. But the one who finds the piece is the most average, most by-the-rule-book brick boy in Legoland, Emmett. And now a piece who's never even tried to be creative in his life must become a master builder and stop the Kragle doomsday. Legos are great, Alex. I really like this movie. This movie's great. And it's one of those <laughs> movies that I went to the theater to see and uh, I wasn't expecting it to be good. And then it was just amazing. Just blew those me away. Those are the best. I love those movies that I have such low expectations for and then just totally blow me away. Yeah, because this is this is way more than I mean, it's easy to write this off as a kids movie or even as a uh, a, a like kids movie. That's also good for adults, but it's just a good movie. Like any calling it any sort of kids movie feels really reductive to me. Yeah. Um, it is kid friendly. Right. But like it also has this whole arc that's built in. That's about like what it's like to play with Legos as a kid and what it's like to play with Legos as an adult and what it's like to want creative freedom and what it's like to want to impose order on a world that feels out of control, which is something mm-hmm. that anyone who's an adult can probably sympathize with. And, um, and, and comparing and contrasting those two things, the idea that they had uh, this kind of redemptive arc for the villain that doesn't feel cheesy at all. Oh um, yeah. That's and so obviously well just the endless amount of creativity that is on display in the movie. Just and a detail. gobsmack amount of detail. Just I don't even I like the the amount of time that was spent making this movie just click on every single brick that's on yeah. the screen is incredible. All the little jokes, all the the world feels so alive. I mean, it would have been so easy to make a Lego movie that feels kind of bland and boring, but they really they really yeah. had so much fun with it. And that's so evident that the whole team just had a blast making this movie that it, you, you just can't help but smile whenever you watch it. Um, I don't know if I've ever really met anyone who just hates the Lego movie. <laughs> I, uh, and I can't say that about a lot of movies. I don't I, I've definitely met people who are like, yeah, it's OK. But I don't think I've ever met anyone who was like, oh, I freaking I freaking hate the Lego movie. The Lego movie sucks. Um, yeah. So one of the main criticisms of it online after it came out that you can't really argue with, but yet it doesn't like really diminish it is like, oh, it's just like a corporate cash grab, which like maybe it kind of is just because Lego is on the title and like throughout the whole thing. But it's not a cash grab because it's not easy. Like it's still a good movie. It's like it's like when Toy Story was the first animated 
a computer animated feature film, like they could have totally phoned that in and just said, we did it first, but they just wanted to make a good movie. And honestly, the parallels between Toy Story and the Lego movie go farther than you would think on first glance. (laughs) They're literally both toy stories. So one of the things that this movie does super well, and it's kind of like based around this whole thing, but it's it's like I've been talking about with the the tropes and the using different um, uh, film expectations and stuff like that. This movie is just built around that. I mean, it's got the whole like Westworld thing going on where there are the different uh, areas, which are like the different um building packages of the Legos. And so every time you go into one of those, you get like kind of into a different genre you get. But the overarching story is, first of all, there's tons of Matrix just like injected throughout this whole thing. Yeah. I mean, Um, there's the whole chosen one. There's mm -hmm. your there's your Morpheus character. There's all he comes back and he can see the master building like Mm -hmm. all this Trinity character. The, uh, he sacrifices the cyber, himself. Cyberpunk esque things. Even though, even the like, what are they called? Micromanagers kind of have like that noodly, yeah. tentacly feel that like a lot of the overworld uh, machines in uh, Matrix have. Squiddies. That's what they call them. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that, I mean, I I love the original Matrix movie, and so that is also one of the reasons that that this movie is very endeared to me um, among all the other things that it has going for it. Um, but it's, it's got like a very um, almost to the T like hero's journey. You have the, uh, the Luke Skywalker Emmett, like, you know, every man kind of guy who stumbles into this big thing. Turns out he's the one who's going to bring balance to the force. Uh, he has the mentor character. He has the villain that even like in Star Wars, he kind of has to bring back to himself and, and balance the good and the bad and the um, and is kind of his father and is literally his father. Uh, yep. Putting all the pieces together, um, huh? putting all the pieces together. <laughs> <laughs> the, Lego jokes. The, the puns just build themselves here, don't they? Yeah, um, building, building themselves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Master builders. So you've got like all the basic building blocks of a story going that on. Blocks. Um, and you've also got just like, again, the the zaniest characters. And also now they get to have fun with IP, which we're going to see again in uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Yeah, but I have no idea how they got, how they, how they. Well, I guess they're not, there's no like super specific references, are there? There's just like really close to references of like Lord of the Rings and other. Nope. They say Gandalf and Dumbledore cause they get them mixed up. Oh no, um, that's right. Yeah, they do. And that's because they're they straight all Lego up characters and Batman, Lego, Superman, Lego owns Green the Lantern. Lego versions of those characters. Don't they? Yeah. Yeah. There's gotta be some like gray area there because they, I mean the, the I mean, amount of space that's covered in the IP is ridiculous. So much. The, um, and it makes sense. I like what you're saying about like this is kind of a preview of their IP fund in Spider-Verse because in a lot of ways this is just a bunch of different universes smashing together. It's like yeah. it's a very multiverse-esque or in a way. being completely multi, separated. Multi-Lego world-esque. Oh gosh. And and yeah, so it it becomes kind of a road movie for a while when we're going through each of the different worlds and we're kind of getting a sense for how the whole thing is 
is yeah. structured. Um, they have to do that. You have to. You have to. You have to travel a bit if you're gonna. If you're gonna show yeah. off all these wor- worlds. You gotta go to them. They do a good job of that in this movie too. If you if they show something, they deliver on it. Yeah, that's true. There's so much setup and payoff. Um, they have like even in the first sequence where we're seeing his average ordinary day, and then all those little characters like kind of come back or pop up, or you know they're all saying what a boring average guy he is. Um, everything is there like for a reason. Um, and then we meet all the all the wacky master builders, the robot pirate, and the weird cat thing. I don't even know what the deal with that Unikitty? was. That just get yeah, Unikitty that gets angry at stuff. Um, well, but but she's not angry, Jonathan. She's very happy, very positive. She's very happy, just bottling it all up. Uh, oh gosh! And then I I think that this is something that that we got to get into at some point but the 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 movie is going along so well the first time you watch it it's it's like all the pieces are there all the 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 story makes sense all you're getting the references blah blah, blah especially watching it as an older person as a kid i mean you're getting all of that just at like a more subconscious level and then the twist and the twist literally adds a whole other layer to every single part of the film in a way that is not just like gimmicky, but also really sweet and heartfelt. Yeah, no, there, it's a really good little character hit there. It actually makes everything, it grounds everything, right? It, it makes it more than just a wacky, zany adventure. It there, There's mm-hmm. real like human stakes at, at the basis of this, right? Like, mm-hmm. especially, especially like considering that all, everything Lord business does, does and says isn't just like will ferrell the dad's character right like it's his son's impression of his father so the the evil version we see of lord business is like the subconscious expression of the negative side of this kid's dad as this kid sees his dad which is really deep um but also like kind of really punching in the same way like it really hits um and it just, I don't know, it, it makes it really stick with you beyond the theater. I think that's the part that really makes you remember this movie beyond just your hour and 30 minute experience. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like everything else is quotable and fun and bright and you'll sing the song in your head for days. But what makes <laughs> you remember a movie years down the road is like emotion and connection and stuff like that and relatability and they they got that here and i think the other thing that's genius about the way that it's done is that there's no allusion to it it comes out of nowhere you're like this movie could have could have well i guess toy story is kind of like half in the human world to begin with but this movie could have lasted completely on its own as just legos and they they don't bring up any kind of like hint about it until that very end, which has got to be like 20, 20 minutes towards the end of the movie or it's, less. It's right at the very end. It's, it's, it's so deep in the third end. act. It's not until Emmett sacrifices himself. Yeah. Yeah. Which, guess, which is uh, also yeah. interesting because Emmett sacrificing himself is the intended end of the story according to the child. And that end changes 
when Mm -hmm. Will Ferrell shows up. So in a way, Will Ferrell showing up not only redeems his character of Lord Business, but also ends up saving Emmett and everyone else in Legoland. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it's kind of fun to see Will Ferrell kind of on the other side of that, like especially and, and especially if you're coming at it from a kid kid's point of view who has probably mostly only knows Will Ferrell from Elf where he's more of the grown-up child kind of character. Um, and then in this one, he's like kind of on the other end of it, shutting all that down. Um, so uh, I, I kind of want to take a step back and look at this movie in terms of, do you think that this movie would exist without YouTube in a weird way? Because I feel like this movie exists because of stop motion Lego movies that became popular on the Internet. Like that is the only reason that anyone would think to make an entire film that's kind of that's kind of structured this way. Maybe, maybe it's possible. Um, But I definitely think that you're onto something in the sense that like the remix culture of YouTube where they take popular things and kind of mishmash them together or do Lego renditions of those things. It's a really good example of remix culture is very much part of Lord and Miller style, right? It's like yeah. taking all these different parts of the pop culture metaverse and smashing them together um, into a Lego verse or a spider verse, if you will. Uh, and kind of, kind of being part of that. I mean, they are kind of like older, elder millennial type age esque. They might be young gen or uh, maybe young gen Xers, but they're just mm-hmm. on that cusp of like prime remix culture era uh, that that loves playing with pop culture and repurposing pop culture to their own ends. And that definitely shows in Lego Movie. Lego Movie is a hundred percent like a remix of a movie, um, and it, it is kind of like embracing that kind of YouTube style. Now, I, I do think that like the stop motion idea is just so natural when it comes to Legos that someone would have hit upon it eventually. But I do think that the fact that it was so popular is part of what made this movie possible. Yeah. And I just had a, I, I had another thought just in terms of the, the argument that this is like like corporate cash grabby is that there's not really anything in the film that is like merch worthy. Like it's not like this film was built to sell like Emmett Legos. The the main character is literally like a generic dude. (laughs) The most boring thing. Like, so there's, there's nothing in there that wasn't already selling well on its own. So it's not like, like the film was trying to get more sales, like maybe Lego in general. uh, Benny, the space band really went up. (laughs) That's true. For the first time since 1985. Yeah, and oh my gosh, just bringing in some of those those nostalgia elements and stuff like that. It's it's all done in in a way that is self-aware, but not like spelling it out for you, except for in like very specific instances like when Morgan Freeman's character dies, uh, which is just hilarious. Um, I was going to tell you the rest of the prophecy, but I was interrupted because I died. Which is telling you what you already know, but not like in a way that's beating you over the head with it, I feel like. No. 
No, he doesn't like repeat it 10 times or anything. It's a good joke. Yeah. But yeah, this one definitely holds up. I think this one, I mean, this one's already kind of a classic and I think it will be Mm -hmm. even more of a classic moving forward. It's just, is a good movie. It'll always be a good kids movie. And I think for a lot of adults too, it'll continue to be a good, good favorite fan favorite. I mean, anyone who's into the kind of creativity or remix pop culture will like this movie. Like it's just, it, it's just hard not to like it on its own. It's so, it's so well paced and bright and cheery and goes down so smooth. Um, it's not like there's depth to it, but it's not, it's, it's so easy to digest that like, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's just hard to object to it in any way, shape or form. Unless I guess you hate big Lego. <laughs> right. Even that depth though, the, the layers of, um, like you've been talking about creativity and, um, control and like fear of, of change or things being different is, uh, is an evolution in Lorna Miller's process. I feel like even from Clyde with a chance of meatballs, which was kind of more of a surface, like uh, just wanting acceptance and relationship with parents who don't understand you and trying to get the girl, but being too awkward. Like those are a little more kind of like easy themes. They're, they're universal and they're evergreen. So it makes sense. But I feel like the the themes that Lego Movie goes into are um, kind of on a deeper level, even to the point where I don't think that children can fully understand all the things that Lego Movie is going for in a way that they probably could with with Clyde with the Chance of Meatballs. But that makes Lego Movie even more timeless because the more you grow up, the more you actually understand what the movie is going for. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. There's something to understand on the from the kids point of view and from the adults point of view. And it only gets deeper as the older you get. Uh, Yeah. Well, without any further ado, Jonathan, do you want to slide into uh, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse or sorry, swing swing on over, swing into (laughs) Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse from 2018. Let's do it. Jason, take it away. Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse from 2018. There's only one Spider-Man. That is, until the universe of Spider-Man dies at the hand of Kingpin, and high school student Miles Morales finds himself Spider-Bit and thrust into a role he is in no way prepared for. And he's not alone. Kingpin's experiment gone wrong has brought a whole set of Spider-Men from various dimensions to Miles' world to help him become the hero he needs to be to save the day. All right, Jonathan, so this one is just a lot of fun. This is a really, really good movie. Um... It is even for me, who is completely superheroed out. <laughs> well, it's it's so much like it's a superhero movie, but it's not like your standard superheroes movie. And yeah, in a lot of ways, so. it builds on it so much and becomes its own thing. Of course, there's a hero's journey packed in there. Um, but like the they really play up like the, the whole world feels confused in the same way that Miles feels confused and disassociated mm-hmm. both within like what he's struggling with before, you know, he sees Spider-Man die and get spit by a spider and after that as well. So, uh, it, yeah. the whole thing just works it's, thematically in so levels, like the zaniness of the world resonates thematically with the zaniness or, or the struggles of the character that they're going through, which is a signature Lord and Miller thing. And obviously all of their collaborators as well. Um, and it's a really good mix of the really hero's good. journey and a building's Roman. 
yeah, I mean, this whole movie is basically a mixed track, if that makes sense. It feels yeah. like a literal like hip hop style remix in a lot of ways. The narrative is that uh, like the the way it like samples up from Spider-Man and then different Spider-Mans and then constantly mm-hmm. goes back and builds on its own themes and remixes itself. Um, like, for instance, with the all right, let's do this one last time. Um, and they do that for each Spider-Man. And again, at the end, when Miles figures out who he is as a Spider-Man, um, yep. hits really well, um, even down to like the animation style, which is a mix. Um, they use a lot of 3D animation, uh, but there's also a lot of other stuff mixed throughout. A lot of the objects in the world feel like they're animated differently than some of the humans. There's the slight. Apparently this film used background. the largest animation crew that Sony Pictures has ever yeah. used of yeah, 140 they- animators. <laughs> They'd have to. This is a giant movie. Um, and yeah. they did a lot of stuff by hand. So instead of adding, uh, like most 3D movies, just add a motion blur effect, essentially, in part of the, in the program, in part of the process uh, of, of animating within a 3D capture animation type program. But this movie opted out of that and instead used a 2D style uh, motion blur effects to, and I don't really know how this works, but they would 2D animate the motion blur sort of on top of the 3D motion to give it more of the comic booky feel. And there's even huh. lots of parts of the movie where almost all of it, except the main character, is is out of focus or like almost looks like it's double exposed, which is another very comic book uh, signature style. Not necessarily intentionally, but a lot of old comic books kind of have that oops, double exposed look to it. There is a lot of very intentional comic book style uh, applied here, though. So there's first of all, the most obvious one is that the there's there's a huge mix of animation styles, especially when we start getting the other uh, Spider-Man in from the different universes. So you have the the Japanese uh, Spider-Man and Looney she's Tunes like Spider-Man, anime Spider-Man yeah, and anime, Spider-Man. Noir. But the the main one that we're using when we're following Miles Morales is it has this like halftone effect in the shadows. So it's like baked into the whole film is this kind of print type of feel to it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they do something that we talked about back in the um, uh, cartoon saloon episode, which is they use these unconventional framings and split screens and stuff like that, which mimic uh, you know, directly in many instances, the the uh, cell patterns of comic books. So they can show multiple things at the same time in the same way that comic books show action by directing your eyes from one cell to another um, in a way that's much more dynamic than just reading or in this case, uh, more dynamic than just watching one frame cut or dissolve to the next frame. Yeah, no, I mean, the whole thing is blended so seamlessly and you kind of get looking at this movie why it needed so many producers and directors um because there's so much here to manage it just looks like a logistical nightmare (laughs) oh my gosh i can't even imagine but it comes together nearly flawlessly like the whole thing hits the whole thing's smooth much like we were talking about with lego movie um the the soundtrack of this movie is just incredible it's just so good yeah Oh, yeah, the Sunflower song. Even the fact that uh, Miles is singing it like a dope, 
which is just one of the most endearing <laughs> ways I've ever seen a character introduced. Like, how can we get somebody to get people to like someone immediately? Show them trying to to sing a song and flubbing it entirely, but they just love it so much that they keep singing it because it's something everyone does. And it shows yeah, that's the rap one, version of Save the Cat. Perfect. Because no one likes a Mary Sue, uh, which if you're unfamiliar with that term, it's kind of like I think most people know what Mary Sue is, right? But it's it's kind of like um, a self-insert character or a character who's too good at like can do everything immediately. They do. They're, they're just good at everything. And no one likes that character because yeah. it's not relatable. It's just annoying. Uh, but it's also very common for superhero characters, which is why it's refreshing in this instance. It's very common. Although Spider-Man for is always characters. kind of a, a Bildungsroman and kind of a, a awkward to um, hero kind of Spider- a journey. So it still fits in the Spider-Verse, if you will. Spider-Man is so awkward and lovable. Just like Spider-Man might just be the best superhero as a character. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know if there's been any other as relatable comic book character as Spider-Man. And I'm not just talking about, like, as me. Like, they're, like I think to almost anyone, like, the, the being Spider-Man, and this movie is all about that, is something that is pretty much relatable to nearly everybody. Mm-hmm. Especially in, love in, in the Spider-Verse world where Spider-Man, there's a Spider-Man literally for everybody. Like there are yeah. so many Spider-Man, Spider-Man and that goes. That's a, that's a huge part of the film itself. So I love that the film exists in a world where both Spider-Man exists and Spider-Man comics exist. So um, Miles Morales God, runs into so Spider-Man and he also runs into comic books that describe Peter Parker uh, becoming Spider-Man and going through the exact same transformation that he's going through. Oh, that's um, the exact that's the exact scene from the first Spider-Man comic too. Um, I'm sure everyone was pretty sure about that when they watched it, but that's right, exactly right, right. like sell for sell what happened, and then they have him go through it, and then he finds it out. What a clever way to reveal that like someone has stumbled into it. Like I can't be Spider-Man. Looks at the book. Oh, <laughs> I am Spider-Man. Oh, whoops. Yeah. And then the, the film ends with the note of you can put on the mask. Anyone can be Spider-Man. And then obviously I kind of actually laughed when he said you can put on the mask because now everyone is wearing masks. Um, but he was like, like, that's that's the whole point, though, is that anyone can be the the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man in their own way, which has its limitations in a world where Spider-Man actually has superpowers. But um Regardless, it's it's kind of baked into like who Spider-Man as a character is because he is um, kind of the rare exception among the the more prevalent superhero origin stories in that average kid stumbles into superhero ness rather than like super Superman who just always has his powers God. or Superman's Iron Man such who a terrible is character. rich and he's able to create all of I'm his sure, powers. I'm sure I just made someone mad, but Superman's a terrible character. I can't... You know who you just made mad? You made Jerry Seinfeld mad, Alex. That's fine. I don't care. Like <laughs> that, His argument about it is just that he is the best superhero because he has all the powers, but that's literally what makes him boring. And like, like the only good Superman movies have been comedies. Like I don't... 
it's so obvious. Like he has, he's, he is the Mary Sue. He's too good at everything. Like, yeah. Superman is the definition of a Mary Sue. Yeah. Like it's just, it's just not fun. And, and he's so, he's so clearly from that era too, of like the thirties or the forties where someone just wanted all the power in a world that felt out of control. So in a way I get like where he came from. Yeah. He just doesn't, He's just not he's just not a good character. He he doesn't make for good stories. Batman can make for good stories because he has no powers. Yeah. Um, he's just rich. Um which adds Same another layer Iron of contradiction. Man. Yep. Uh we could wax poetic about that all all day. <laughs> but uh, I also like that um the setup of the concept of the Spider-Verse, which is not original to this movie. It's it's in the comics. There's been a bajillion different series about it. But it's so fluid in this non-aggravating way that and just it's makes approachable it really for people fun. who only know the basics of Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah, and it helps that it's just like okay, so everyone's Spider-Man, but they're Spider-Man, but they're just different Spider-Man. Like that's yeah. not hard to wrap your head your head around. It's like one character, but three million different editions of that editions uh, of that character. It's not like the Secret Wars nonsense where it's literally like 3,000 characters and here's 30 different versions of all of 3,000 characters <laughs> each. Um, and also everything's operating on a different time frame. And also we're going to undo everything we just did in every single comic. Um, so nothing matters or makes sense anymore. Spider-Man is just yeah. like, well, spiders, look at them go. Uh <laughs> And it's just a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. And you can tell like really good stories in it. Um, I also appreciate that we're just at this point in society, Jonathan, where there is there is no need for anyone to tell anybody Spider-Man's origin story. No one needs to know it. Except we, all we get know it five it. times in this movie. <laughs> we, we well, we get it. We get it in like two seconds each time. And we just get the, the part. The parts that they linger on are just the parts that are different. Um, yeah. And yet there are elements of this story that unfold in a way that are more impactful if you're basically familiar with with Spider-Man. So specifically Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, because I think that's kind of the base point that they're assuming for this film. And that's kind Mm -hmm. of the one that they start with. That's the first um, the the first uh, story that we hear where he's like. And then I did this and they do the whole like Spider-Man three uh, cringe thing. Um, so that's kind of like where the, the story starts. But that that version of the story, which is the most basic as far as I as far as I know, um, it's, it's which pretty, involves it's pretty his, accurate. Yeah. And it involves his his uncle dying. The great power comes great responsibility um, and and all of that, which makes the whole story of Miles Morales's uncle and father a lot more impactful because it's like a foil to the classic story that we all are familiar with. Um, yeah, you have a kid who's a, running a away tragic from family. Way. Yeah, and and a kid and an uncle who's not the moral figure or moral signpost that the nephew thought he was. Yeah, um, that he should have been. He's way more more complex and kind of anti-villainish in a lot of ways once you get into the depths of Prowler um, than you would expect. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and the, the whole thing is very tragic, but even, even to the point where if you're looking at it as a parallel, like all, all he has to offer miles is keep doing what you're doing. Like he doesn't have any really true words of wisdom because he, he no, doesn't and, know and he's, he's gone the wrong way. That, like every, all the Spider-Men who are trying to give him advice, it's, they, they try to give him all this advice, but at the end they're like, well, you just, you just have to keep going. And that's the whole moral of the thing is like, you're going to get hit and you're going to get knocked down. And the trick is to get back up that that's it. That's it. And that's honestly really good life advice. One, um, and two, incredibly relatable, even if you don't have superhero superpowers, which I feel like is just really good. Like both to have a character development and a moral to a superhero story that is actually relatable. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't like you know who does know what's up in this film is <laughs> Aunt May. Aunt May is great in this movie. I love Aunt May. She has some of the best lines. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, oh, She's... I definitely didn't use it to start a dating profile so I could get out of this house once in a while. Like, dang, Aunt May. <laughs> but she becomes uh, almost like the the mentor. She's like, finally, it took you long enough to figure yourself out and come down here, and get your own suit. Yep. Yep. Um, all of the other side Spider-Men too are really good, really well-written characters that they seem to have a lot of plans on how to develop further in the future. Um, even the ones, and they seem to have knowledge. They seem to be very conscious of how much time they have to develop each character. They're like, okay, Spider-Gwen. There's definitely some diminishing returns. <laughs> Spider-Gwen and Spider-Man B, you guys have more time in this film so you're going to get way more development and they put in they make those characters complex enough to reach the time they have and then for uh folks like spider noir who is voiced by nicholas cage and i love it um or penny parker or peter porker they give them way less complex stories because they just don't have the time they're just there for flavor really um, yeah. but they're really fun characters. That's and insensitive they, they definitely... to Peter Porker. What's that? <laughs> you said they're just there for flavor. I think that's insensitive to Peter Porker. I mean, Peter Porker's not a pig. He's a spider. Well, he was bitten by a radioactive pig. That's what, that was his story. This is true. He is now part pig. This is, <laughs> this is very true. Um, Peter Porker's hilarious. Um, what a, what a good, like just cut of random characters through, so funny totally random um i feel like spider noir who is a real character i feel like that's like a bit of a jab at like comic book styles like sin city or like 300 oh yeah or watchman where it's like oh i'm dark i'm gritty although Uh, i would watch the crap out of a uh spider noir film that was spun off like the lego batman movie the Lego Batman movie is way better than it had any right to be. <laughs> Just like the Lego movie. And it yeah, was exactly. way better than you have any right to expect something called the Lego movie to be. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So the my my main issue with this film, which is it's not the point, so it's it's fine, but in in terms of the the hero's journey, it does the thing that is common but and and it's hard to get around especially with the the limitations of the film format but the the switch flipping from miles being incompetent to saving the day is so fast 
it it's like instantaneous. <laughs> there's not even a training montage. There's a costume montage, and then he's like in there ready to go, which is I I understand is kind of the point, like the whole leap of faith thing. But still, like he he literally was physically unable to do anything, and then he could save the day. That's so like I the main thing that of kind it, of irks me. Part of it, part of it is a constraint for time, right? And another mm-hmm. part of it is that they do show him getting experience with all of those moves and everything that yeah. happens throughout the movie. The problem isn't that he's physically incapable of doing it. The problem is that he doesn't think he could do it. Um, so he's unknowingly getting all of that experience through failure throughout the entire film. And then he manages just enough, just barely, to, to pull off just enough things at the end of the movie to to save the day. Um, and of course, yeah. there's once we're once we're into it, once the music starts playing, the suspension of, del- of belief and the credit you've earned over the course of the movie is kicked in and they just make the fight as cool as possible. So Miles probably comes off a little more, a little better than than he really is at that point. But, um, you know, a lot of it's for time. I'm sure I'm sure that in Spider-Man 2, they'll have a lot of that. Actually, this, so I know you don't play as many video games as I do, Jonathan, but um, or actually, I think any, but <laughs> any. Yeah. Uh, the, so the Spider-Man. So uh, a few years ago, not that long ago, but there was a, a Spider-Man game that came out on PlayStation 4. That was just amazing. Everyone loved it. Um, is, it that the, really, the, is that the uh, open world? Yes. One. Yeah, really, they had a version for the GameCube, or I think that, that we they played. had one way back in the day, my dude. Way back in the day. <laughs> I know exactly That's which the one, one I'm you're familiar about. with. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So it's actually very similar to that. But like imagine like. Uh, a few hundred more people worked on it for a few more years and they had modern technology. Uh, Nice. So it basically almost looks like a movie on screen as you play it. But it's really good and everything is really cool. Spider-Man is really competent because again, like they have the Spider-Man like in this movie, the one that dies at the beginning who's basically in his mid-20s and has been doing this for about 10 years and knows what's up uh, and can fly really well. Well, uh, they made a version for the new console that came out recently called uh, Spider-Man 5. And one of the really nice bits of of storytelling they have in there is that as you're playing as uh, Miles Morales during this game, you do not swing quite as well as you do as Spider-Man. And Miles routinely fumbles um, and then recovers. Um, over the course of the game and you really they really work in that little detail of him not being super duper competent at being Spider-Man yet because he's so new um, so I'm willing to bet that you'll see something like that in Spider-Man 2 uh, there's the other but, thing that I, I don't know like all the the someone knows all the lore of the Spider-Man world uh, we'll have Aaron back and he can explain it to us probably but um, I don't know he's DC the, yeah, that's true but miles morales doesn't have the natural web shooting so some of the actually, some of so the this is this is Spider-Man actually something that's do. different in the the peter ramey version spider-man doesn't have natural web shooting he has web shooters. none of them do none of them do in fact it was really oh, weird okay. to a lot of people when they put that in the sam ramey version huh okay yeah. I thought he invents, that he there were some versions in the universe that did have natural there, web shooting and, and there, there okay. are now 
a lot of versions that have natural web shooting. Uh, but it is not, it is something that was invented by Peter Parker. It's not, it, it's not, it's not a natural mutation like you see in, gotcha. uh, in this, the San Raimi version, which is, again, a lot of people were really weirded out when they did that. I had no idea when I saw that movie for the first time because I knew nothing about Spider Man, but it is something that a lot of people saw and was like, that's kind of gross. Um, but also, <laughs> he was also like crawling on walls and stuff. So, you know. And then Spider-Man 3 emo happened. So. Yeah. Also, also Miles has like his own set of powers and they, they did that very intentionally and they do that with a lot of the spider people to make them feel mm-hmm. very different. Like all of them can swing. Obviously, they have their web shooters. All of them have like the spider sense and super strength and reflexes. Uh, a lot, almost all of them can climb on walls. But, you know, some of them have different powers. Like Miles' big thing is that one, he can turn invisible and two, he's essentially his hands can be tasers. He can shock yeah. people. That's his venom shock. If you hear anyone reference that, um, which he does accidentally and then intentionally towards the end of the film. The other yeah. thing too is that when he's a lot of what Spider-Man is capable of is just the fact that he's his superpowers are like hyper intuition and hyper reflexes. So once you're confident with using those, a lot of like the Oh, you need to aim? Well, you don't really need to aim because you have spider sense. So you can mm-hmm. hit the target regardless, or you can dodge out of the way of something because of spider sense. Spider sense covers a lot of uh <laughs> a lot of bases. I think there's a there's a wishy-washy like Jedi thing where like Jedi's can see like two seconds in the future or something. That's well, that's how they in, can in hit all those bullets. Some book or whatever. Um all but those yeah, light that, bullets that travel helps, way slower than the lot. speed of light. Yeah, right. Um, so one thing that I was just thinking about in terms of like the the there's there's a lot of parallels in terms of like the hero's journey and also some of the character arc stuff that kind of cross over Spider Man with the Lego Movie and Clyde with Intense Meatballs. But I, I'm almost thinking that Lord and Miller might have created their own trope in the. Uh, overly affectionate cop father figure between Mr. T and Miles's dad in this movie. You know, I didn't think about it, but they are two very similar characters, aren't they? Yeah. In a lot of See ways. See my beautiful it's, angel it's son, Cal. I love him so much. One exists in a comedy and one exists in a, um, in a, in a drama of, of course, yeah. The dad uh, has like the most dramatic story out of the whole movie. Dad, the dad in, in Spider-Verse has an amazing story really good um, yeah. man it's incredible it's a really good story I really 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 like the story in Spider-Verse I really really like the music obviously they they actually had so they had all these tracks and they had some score and then they had a DJ come in and remix the uh, the score to the cut after it was done um, okay which is actually not as common anymore as it used to be they used to have you know like way back in the day like 40s, 50s, 60s, they used to cut the movie and then have an orchestra perform to the cut um, to get the music just right. But nowadays, it's more common to have the song pre-made and then uh, then cut to the song, sort of, because the other way is more expensive. So whenever you that have happened so- kind of um, American New Wave era, like Easy Rider, when they started using pop music as the a soundtracks. Lot of that. Yeah, yeah. 
But you, they use pop music in this one too. And some of them are a hundred percent written for this movie. Um, but there are also ones that are remixed by, uh, I think, did they get Steve Aoki in to do this? I think they got Steve Aoki in to do this film. Um, who, uh, who remixed those songs to the track. And whenever a movie really takes the time to do that, especially because since the time of live orchestra performances for scores, movies have like ratcheted up the speed of cuts by like 10 billion percent. Uh, whenever someone <laughs> yeah. takes the time to do that, I'm thinking of this movie and uh, Baby Driver, where they literally like had the music mm. on set and were cutting to the music on set and shooting to the music on set that like it really shows. It really shows. And the yeah. smoothness of the movie and the impact of the movie hits so well. I, I refuse to watch Spider-Verse without like really high quality headphones, basically, <laughs> just because it's so good. Same with Baby Driver. You have to yeah. be hearing that music. Yeah. And the, the precision that you can achieve with animation just like makes that all the more impactful. Oh, of course. Of course. It's incredible. I really like this movie. This movie's really, 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 really good. Yeah. Three out of four is not bad. So shall we move on into overall notes? Oh, oh, you mean uh, I thought you were rating it like on a star scale. And I was no, I'm like, talking about our movies of, this week. I was like, who rates on out of four stars? Um, and and then I realized that you're talking about 21 Jump Street. <laughs> I'm sure for some people out there that like watched that when they were 16 with their friends, um, maybe while they were consuming a substance that they weren't supposed to, that that movie has a special place in your heart. And good for you. The drugs but, in that movie just look like scratch and sniff stickers. Like what, what, what oh, even was it? The drugs in this, it was nothing real. Uh, the drugs in this <laughs> oh, movie no. are the, in, in 21 jump street were intentionally very stupid. Uh, yeah. no, no drug works like that. Uh, the stages are just the most absurd thing. Like it's, it's all overblown immature humor. I was joking with Taylor when, when we were watching it because the, when they show them how the drug works that like sets up the whole thing, it, it, there's some, some like web video that they're watching, like on YouTube of a kid taking it. And we were like, this kid probably just sent in this as an audition tape. And they were like, yeah, we'll use that. And then they just paid him for it. And that was it. <laughs> Didn't even have to come in. I mean, it was all can, like home video oh, style. I could a hundred percent see that happening. I'm willing to bet they they brought him in, but I, I could also see the other thing happening. All right. So what what have we learned about Phil Lord and Chris Miller through these four um, pretty different, but also pretty similar movies? Yeah. I mean, they like uh, they, they like comedies that are about extremes and those extremes elevate both the humor and the uh, inner conflict and drama of the characters mm -hmm. in the movie. They like character driven humor as well. A lot of the situations that get played for humor in these movies are genuinely situations that reflect and are derived from the internal conflict of the character as well. Um, so yeah. for instance, in spider verse, like the fractured, confusing outer conflict mirrors the internal fractured, confusing conflict of miles in cloudy with a chance of meatballs, the frantic, ever-growing outer conflict man and uh mirrors the frantic ever-growing inner conflict of flint um and it in in that sense when comedy derives 
from the extreme situation. It is therefore deriving from the character itself. So everything feels connected and the, the humor doesn't never feels forced or out of place in a lot of these movies, which is great. Um, especially when they're, they're at the helm writing the movies as well. You can, you can see that uh, all, all connect through. They really like characters that kind of feel like fish out of water, fish or fishies, fish eye, just fish, fish out of just water. Um, you know, Flint is suddenly thrust into the spotlight. Uh, Emmett is suddenly literally thrust. in the town of of uh, anchovies fish. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Emmett in uh, Lego World is thrust into the a world he didn't know even know existed outside of Bricktown, where he has to become creative all of a sudden and a unique individual all of a sudden, and he doesn't also know how to the do human that. world eventually. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, also that, and then uh, finally for mile, well, Twenty One Jump Street, kind of not fish out of water, kind of. Well, actually, it is well, because they're experiencing they're experiencing the other side of the high school experience that they didn't know about. So they are yeah. like two fish that swapped ponds all of a sudden. Um, if their if their emotional maturity didn't match the situation they were in, it would feel more like a fish out of water <laughs> yeah yeah it would it it it's hard to compare that one because that one because they do a lot of this work in the writing and the and like the animatic iteration like we talked about of these movies and that one is one live action and two basically just jonah hill's movie so yeah. it's it feels totally it's kind of it's kind of the outlier here uh but even miles where they they kind of just wrote and produced which feels like a minimization, but I'm sure they had a very large impact on the film. Um, they, uh, uh, Miles is literally not a Spider-Man and suddenly a Spider-Man, a Spider-Fish and a multiverse <laughs> full of Spider-Fish and does not know what to do about it um, over the course of the movie. Uh, obviously, they have the hero's journey that pops up with everything. Everything's very rapid fire. Um Everything's very quick and slick and smooth. Um, there's not a lot of scenes in these movies, 21 Jump Street, again, being the ex- exception, that are like difficult or slow to watch. Um, so it's just uh, it's just a good movie watching experience overall. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to some of their upcoming projects and hoping that they'll be as fun as their last few projects. Yeah, and I think the other thing that makes them so much fun to watch, especially for people like us, is that you can just tell how much they love movies. Like we've been talking about, they they understand how they work and they incorporate them in. It almost feels like like the same kind of way that Tarantino loves movies and he takes them and just has an insane idea and runs with it, but also incorporates a lot of the history of cinema into whatever that idea is. They do the same kind of thing in generally a more like family friendly kind of a way. Um, And there's, there's a lot to pick up on and there's a lot more to pick up on the more other films you watch at the same time uh, because they, they have a, a large breadth of, of cinema cinematic knowledge that they bring into all of their films. Yeah. I also love that they're just such a strong force in the animation world. Um, and they kind of represent this, like it seems like they're just like the tip of the iceberg of this community of people who are collaborating and trying to make these really unique, fun projects. Um, kind of 
outside of Pixar, but also still in the mainstream, if that makes sense. And that mm-hmm. isn't really a shot at Pixar, just the fact that like Disney has forced Pixar dominance upon the industry to the point where, again, like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, everything's either Pixar, a Pixar quote clone, even if it's not really trying to be, or it is something that's a total outlier and therefore labeled as indie and not for mainstream consumption. Uh, yeah. Which is kind of a bummer. Like it would be nice if like stuff that wasn't Pixar was could could have a chance at both being considered good and for everyone. And I feel like Spider Verse is a very good and Lego movie as well are a very good step in that direction. Spider Verse yeah. especially because it's really like you you there are definitely people and I, I, I I'm sure I know lots of them who are ready and willing to dismiss Lego movie as well, that's just a kid's movie. There's some good stuff in it for adults, but it's just a kid's movie and therefore not worth my time. But you can't do that quite as easily with Spider-Verse. And that that's uh, that's promising to me. Like I, I would I would like to see some more projects like that that can make innovative animation more mainstream. And I think there's a chance now, too, because I've noticed with the last few and this is totally a, a industry tangent jonathan i apologize but i've noticed with the past like two pixar movies at least the uh the italian one or uh the one with like the sea monsters yeah and the upcoming one as well uh the one with like the red panda or the the girl who transforms into the red panda red yep that their release is kind of limited to people who have disney plus and i know a lot of people have disney plus but I also know a lot of people don't have Disney Plus. Yeah. Um, so the market has just gotten way segmented on Disney. And maybe their animation dominance won't be as total. But I, I can't guarantee it and I can't predict it because we're, we're deep into some un, untowed waters here. And we'll, yeah. we'll see what how that all shakes out and goes down. Yeah, and I am interested to see what happens with Lord and Miller going forward because they're, I mean... Dare I say they're probably like in the peak of their career right now. They've got with the the next Spider-Man movie coming out and a couple other things. They have a a pandemic movie coming out, which I don't know if that's going to be animated or live action, um, but kind of it's called Premonition, a pandemic story. So I'm not sure if that's uh, like documentary about the last year or kind of fictional take. I imagine it's more fictional, but I don't know if it's comedy or it almost sounds more horror, honestly. Um, I don't I don't know. So here's the thing uh, about that. And I, I'm not sure I could be very wrong. And maybe in a few years from now, I, uh, I'll be proved, proven very wrong. But I don't know anyone. I haven't heard of anyone who's clamoring for pandemic themed content. I don't, no, but we like, all know like, it's coming. So I think I mean, we to all, some we people, it's, it's like a, gonna you got to be the first one there. Kind of a thing, yeah, but yeah. But also, here's the thing: we're not like, well, yeah. Let's get this ball rolling. Well, my my first uh, my first on screen credit for a television show, Jonathan, happened last year with um, connecting on ABC. I think it was uh, that was literally about like friends uh, connecting through Zoom during the pandemic because they couldn't meet in person, uh-huh. uh, and it got partway through the season and there was other pandemic themed content that was on that did also did not do great 
things that did like a pandemic episode uh did okay but like specifically geared pandemic content so far has not performed super well i feel like the only stuff that could pull that off is like a like a simpsons or like a you know and almost anthological or or uh maybe but i just don't think anyone wants where you just do a one-off i just don't i don't think anyone wants to hear it it's like yeah so i and and here's the thing that uh I, i tend to compare it to in my head is um you don't see a lot of movies from the 30s that are specifically about the Great Depression. You see ones that incorporate elements of it, and you see ones that uh, obviously, like, it's a big plot point, uh, like the stock market crash or the fact that there's a lot of poor people and homeless people and hungry people at that point in time. But you don't see a lot of ones that are like, let's delve into the thematic issues of the Great Depression. You don't see that until like the 60s. Well, with- you you almost do, but it's it's not explicitly about the Great Depression. It's just a lot of like class class well, that's distinction. What I'm it's dealing with issues surrounding it. Yeah. But like you could talk about like healthcare overall or like how information is spreading. Like I could see stuff like that doing well now. But I don't see anything that's specifically about the pandemic or even yeah. a pandemic faring well right now. I just don't think anyone wants to hear it. And I think much like in the 30s, I think popular consumption is going to veer and it already has veered uh, more and more towards escapism and fantasy. And I don't I like we've we've already seen like a slight pull away from stuff that's like dark and gritty. Like, uh, I don't think anyone really wants to see that right now. Yeah. Uh, the like irony the, is that this is coming at the point where a lot of people are getting superhero fatigue. So it's like, where is that fantasy going to come from if, you know, we're going to get tired of Marvel of, soon? There, there, I mean, there's a lot of TV shows out there that are just about other things or about like happier versions of real life that are going on right now. I don't know. The whole the whole industry is like Schmigadoon. <laughs> Schmigadoon is 100 percent escapist fantasy. <laughs> I have not yeah, seen it. Also very self-aware. Um, I'm also not going to see it because I've sworn off television. But um, And that's Apple TV, too. Ugh. I actually do have Apple TV just because they carry Cartoon Saloon. Um, uh, and I haven't bothered to sense. get rid of it yet. I probably will in the nearest future, actually, because it's just not worth it. Um, but yeah. Yeah, it's it's a thing. I don't know. That seems like a risky project to me for these guys. Maybe they're yeah. going to have a really interesting take on it. But like, I mean, even even other stuff like there's video games that have been come out that were set to come out that were designed years ago to be called like something, something or it was specifically Rainbow Six Quarantine. That was going to be the name of the next Rainbow Six game. And they were they changed it to Rainbow Six Extraction because nobody wants to play a game about a pandemic right now. Yeah, uh, there's even it's harder to tell because The Last of Us was so popular. Uh, the first game that the second game might have taken a slight sales hit from coming out and being about a zombie plague in the middle of an actual plague and everyone being like, we don't want to play sad stuff right now. Uh, yeah. And even the fact that you don't see as much apocalyptic fiction popping up anywhere as much as you did during like the teen dystopian apocalyptic fiction era of uh two to ten years ago 
Yeah. So, yeah. but tracing back to the like the, the reason I bring this up is is that I think it would be interesting to see what they what they do do going forward because they have kind of a, a record of having creative differences with the big major Hollywood studios. Like we said, with even their first film, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, and also on Solo. Um, and it's hard to tell if that's because they like their creative vision is so distinct and they're so forceful about it that that it doesn't mesh with some of their other collaborators or if it's uh, just like a personality thing. Like there's not, a lot of things that yeah, go on under the surface there. The studio. I, I don't know. A lot of that is stuff that's happened behind closed doors. So it's hard to tell. Yeah. But it'll be know. interesting to see how that plays out and if that pattern kind of repeats in their stuff in the future. Because clearly what they're doing is working. They have so many home runs like with with their animation work and stuff like that. They understand like what people like to watch. Uh, but there's there's also some kind of tension that's kind of hinted at in some of those um, more tabloidy kind of stories about them. So it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out with their future projects. Yeah, it'll be a trip for sure. Um, especially when we're moving into the streaming era, where the where movies come out online first. I mean, yep. I don't even know if I. I honestly do not know if Marvel, as like a, a theater franchise, is going to survive. I really don't, especially after the kerfuffle with Black Widow. Like yeah. I don't. Well, it seems I like both Marvel and Star Wars are shifting their gears to focus more on their uh, serial content. shows. Yeah, yeah. I think I honestly think that's what it's going to become. I think it's going to become like essentially live action comic book series on air uh, on Disney Plus. Um, and Star Wars, I mean, Star Wars was already pulling away because their trilogy kind of, well, they essentially say what you will about the movies. Some of them were better than others, but it, it's no doubt that the most recent trilogy was just like mismanaged into a nightmare with no yeah. proper direction. So... They, uh, they they pulled real hard away from doing any more uh, features already. And with the success of Mandalorian, it seems like they're putting all their eggs in that particular TV franchise basket. Yep. So we'll see. But uh, they they have some great stuff that they've already left for us. And, and I'm excited to see uh, what it is that they come out with in the future. But what is in the future for us, Alex? What are we going to be talking about next month on the podcast here? Well, next month on the podcast, Jonathan, we're going to be talking about one Spike Jones, which I just realized is not his actual name. It's his stage name. Uh, but we're going to be talking about uh, four, well, his big four features, really, because um, he's a video guy who got into movie making and... It's, he's got a very unique style that's very different than a lot of the other stuff you see in theaters in the past few decades. So we're going to be talking about Being John Malkovich from 1999, Adaptation with a period from 2002, and Where the Wild Things Are from 2009 um, to be followed up finally with Her from 2013, um, which feels like it came out sooner than 2013, but I guess it did come out in 2013. Um, so... Those are the collection of very kind of weird movies, uh, definitely different movies that we're going to be talking about. I've never seen Being John Malkovich. I've always wanted to see it. So this is going to be an interesting set. I of have movies actually not explore. seen any of these movies. So You've never I'm seen very any of these? excited. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, yeah. I missed the boat on her and also Where the Wild Things Are. 
and I never got around to making myself like watch a- the first I, two. I think you'll like adaptation. Uh, it, it does star Nick Cage as himself twice. Uh, nice. or, or I do have a soft twice, spot for the surreal, two. so I'm kind of looking forward to it. Yeah, I think you're going to like adaptation. It's all about like a writer trying to adapt a novel into a screenplay and that going terribly wrong. Um, And I just, it just seems very up your alley. I think you're going to enjoy it. All right, bring it on. There's also a potted plant that plays a big role. And I know you like potted plant movies. (laughs) I could tell from the cover of that film, which is the only thing I know about it. All right. Well, if you would like to support the show, you can do that by heading over to our Patreon account over there. You can join our digital community on Discord and hear us record the podcast live. Um, And even right now, as we record very late uh, where I am, even getting late to where Alex is, which is saying something. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, you can also get access to our bonus podcast. So if you would like a little bit extra content where we talk about short films, new releases, uh, and even films that were released 100 years ago, uh, as we will be talking about shortly, uh, the last thing that we talked about on the bonus podcast, though, that you can listen to right now was Inseparable, which is an old, uh, old as in like 2007 short film starring Benedict Cumberbatch, also starring Benedict Cumberbatch twice. Uh, so there you go. If you want to see some Benedict Cumberbatch from before he was super famous and uh, hear us talk about it in a really weird kind of a thing, then go go check out the bonus podcast. Yeah, go check it out, huh? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, that's about all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at at JS Satchel. And I'm at Alex Geringer. And I'm at the Blue Jay, 1994. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people will know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right. See ya. Elbow pop. Ow. No, feels good, actually. Oh, okay.